Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up post, Another Week Ends, which is sort of like our Christian cosmopolitan grace-infused take on the contents of the interwebs as we see them for the week. In just a moment, I'll be joined by the usual suspects to discuss the contents of Another Weekend's. But first, I had the privilege of chatting this week with Dr. Todd Brewer, New Testament professor at General Seminary in New York City and the author of our best books, theological books, that is, of 2016. Todd, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Of course. And you are the author of our best theology books of 2016. How long have you been doing this? Uh, it's got to be like five or six years now. Um, six years ago, David sent a, uh, a a thing out to like all the contributors an email saying, hey, uh, we have this idea. We want to do like a, a top list for the end of the year. And I thought, oh, I read a lot of theology. Let's uh, let's go for it, and it's been really f- sort of fun to do every year, and I, I've kept doing it. Now, it's, what I liked about the list this year, I mean, you did. I love the the headings because you're like best Pixar film, and then you kind of parenthesize, you know, abreactive theology, you know, like I guess like uh, medicine for the soul kind of stuff, best comic book films, and you're like books on Reformation heroes, and uh, my favorite is the best gangster films, books on the Apostle <laughs> Paul, who is. The number one G, right? I mean, he's the gangster. <laughs> yeah, that's why I chose the picture of him with the sword. Um, you know, the defender of the faith in that sense. <laughs> I recently heard somebody say that academics extol creativity, but seldom pursue it. Do you think that's true? Like, Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, you, like, for example, everyone says that um, Richard Hayes writes like a dream. Uh, or John Barclay, like in, in the New Testament field. And, but no one actually like practices that. <laughs> yeah, no one who, there's no one who's like, yeah, you know, this will make for really good writing if I don't have quite as many passive verbs. I'm like, like, yeah, it's not something people work on, but people love at the same time. <laughs> Do people, Tom Gillespie, like the, the former, uh, president of Princeton Seminary of Blessed Memory, once told me that systematic theologians are like the surgeons of the seminary. Like, you know, by that he meant the ego, the ego, like centric guys. <laughs> so do you think, I, I always feel like, like, is it true? Like if you go do a PhD in New Testament, is it because you like telling people that verse doesn't mean what you think it means? <laughs> like I, like if, if systematicians are like to tell people, this is what you should think is the New Testament thing that that doesn't mean what you think it means. Um, the ego of, of a new Testament scholar is, um, a complicated thing. I mean, I got into new testaments for uh, study because I found problems I wanted to solve. Um, but to be a new Testament faculty person on, on staff, it, it, there is a sense in which it gives you the Supreme Trump card. Like, no, that's not actually what scripture says. Um, I'm sorry, your liturgy's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) wrong yeah you're fired Uh, right um i think it's a better trump card than than systematicians you know 
Yeah, because like at least in terms of the hierarchy of kind of how we form our life and faith and thought and things like, you know, if it's the, even implicitly within um, certain mainline traditions, there, there is a sense in which if it's not in scripture, then you're, then you're probably having some, you got to have double the work to do to show why, why this matters. It should at least resonate with it to some degree. Yeah. <laughs> even in the most like, non-scripturally rooted churches like well you can't just get rid of it i mean it's sort of right you got you gotta like okay you gotta justify why it's there if something's in scripture like it's well it's in scripture like <laughs> that but if it's you know that sort of thing i mean it says holy bible on the cover it's holy i mean you can't just you know, dismiss it like it says <laughs> so okay of your okay you've got a lot of books on the list so if you had to pick the one book outside of the bible on this list that you had to be alone with on a desert island. This is, this is castaway. It's that kind of, you know, like, this is you. You're going to be spearfishing, really bad beard. You got your little Wilson volleyball. <laughs> what book keeps you company other than the Bible on this list? Well, the Bible's not on this list, so anyway. Right. That's uh, because the Bible wasn't written in 2016. If it was, it'd be on the list. It'd be huge. <laughs> yeah. It'd be at the front. Big picture. Um, so... Uh, so, all right. So on the, uh, sort of scenario, I am on a desert Island, you know, I need one book other than the Bible, like a being on a desert Island alone with my thoughts is a pretty desperate situation. So I'd probably want, uh, Kevin Rose, one true life, which would, uh, give me a sense of, of which like to understand my impending death. Like, <laughs> wow. Okay. That's, uh, <laughs> That's a, little, that's a little dark, but I like it. So, so yeah, that made the list on the top of the best gangster film, i.e. books on the Apostle Paul. How long is this book? Oh, it's not long. It's max 300 pages, I think. Oh, not long. Max 300. But that's a little long. I mean, for some people. But uh, Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's incredibly readable, um, surprisingly so. He shows his... Um, <laughs> I mentioned earlier people who uh, New Testament scholars say they write like a dream. Kevin Rose, actually, he's in that kind of pantheon. Where are you on the pantheon between passive verbs and dream active verbs? Are you like one is passive, 10 is like um, Richard Hayes? I, I'm, not, I'm not on the pantheon uh, at all at this point. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, wor- you know, I'm working on my writing. It's, it's, it's uh, yeah, we're getting there. You, you have um. You have John Newton's book, Falling Into Grace, on the list. We had him on the podcast. He spoke at a conference. Now, it's really interesting, right? Because I feel like in theological writing, you have, there's a group of people that are really focused on the utterly monergistic, <laughs> gratuitous nature of God's mercy, right? And that it's all about God, not about us. Yeah. And those people tend to be allergic to practice or, you know, to writing about uh, things that human agents do like go to church or do liturgies or that sort of thing. Yeah. And then you have people that write about practice who tend to skew a kind of really grace oriented approach to spirituality and faith. And this book seems to try to build a bridge here. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the things I really appreciate about it. The, um, yeah, the, the kind of, 
the like totally monergistic side of, uh, of our, the kind of my, my theological friends, I, um, you know, I, I sort of sit at the table with them and nod and think it's great. But then at the same time, I always have this like begging like question in my mind of, okay, but what about, you know, I live here, right? Um, you know, I wake up in the morning, I have my coffee and, and I think about my day and it's not always a cheery thing. Like talk about life in some sense, like not necessarily like a, give me a how to list, but you know, be far more, um, uh, you know, don't, don't be so abstract in your theological sort of, uh, constructions. Um, and I think Newton's book, uh, avoids that pitfall and he avoids the other side, which is, you know, just give me a to-do list. Like, yeah, that, yeah. That, like oftentimes preachers think, you know, in order to be relevant or applicable to everyday life, they, they've got to tell people what to do. And, and Newton's book, I think il, il, illustrates a kind of a, a third way, you know? So, yeah, I liked, I mean, I like that. I, I think quite highly of it myself. And you also have three books. Well, well, two books in an honorable mention on Luther, and this is the this is the uh, well, actually, you have two books on Luther, one on, um, on Thomas Cranmer, on Cranmer, yeah. Now, of those two books, which is the one? I guess it's the one that's not the honorable mention because you have, I mean, you have Martin Luther and the Adoring Word of God by Robert Kolb, and then you have Lindell Roper's Martin Luther Renegade and Prophet. Now, people, there's a lot of Luther talk this year, yeah. So. Are we going to stick with that? Like, if you're really recommending things, if, if someone's going to read one book on Luther from last year, do they go Kolb or do they go Roper? Uh, so here's what I like about the Roper book. Um, so as I sort of say in the in the the blurb, um, it's an updating of Eric Erickson's Young Man Luther, which came out like 60 years ago, right? So Erickson's uh, Young Man Luther came out at a time in which Freudian psychology was like all the rage. And what it was, was a way of like tearing down reformational insights, right? Um, all the entirety of Luther's theology can be attributed to his poor relationship with his father. Um, and what, what, what I love about the Roper book is that she like makes sense of that, but isn't, um, doesn't tear down Luther at the same time. Like she has a, a, a really sort of, um, deep appreciation for Luther as a thinker, even as she finds problems with, um, his thought and illuminates his sort of life story. It's kind of like Frank Lake, like, you know, when he writes about Freud, I mean, Lake, like loves Freud. He just doesn't like his conclusions, <laughs> but he thinks right. a lot of the, observations are absolutely right. Like it's just what you do with them isn't necessarily, (laughs) you don't need to, you know, do what Freud does. Right. Yeah. Now, okay. Let's talk about the elephant on the list, man. Fleming Rutledge. Fleming Rutledge. Her book on the crucifixion. I I feel like if I was going to teach a class on the atonement to like seminary students or undergrads, I might just use this book and then have little primary source snippets. I mean, I feel like this, if I had to take a book on the atonement, it's a really good book. Yeah. Yeah. Th- 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 this is uh, back to your d- uh, desert island question. Th- this was also, you know, this was the second book that came to my mind. Um, I mean, uh, what I love about Rutledge is um, she has a kind of core uh, insight and belief in, in terms of what she thinks the cross does, which is the justification of the ungodly. 
but that doesn't uh, sort of uh, force her to be um, reductionistic in how what it is the cross is doing. She sort of sees many things and many, many kind of analogies or, uh, or ways of describing what the cross does um, without and, and appreciates them without like you know, saying it's a wax nose polyvalent symbol that means nothing. I mean, she, she, she is, I think, really attentive to the varieties that scripture has to speak about the cross. And so if you were to, um, yeah, while also having a kind of the core insight of the justification of the ungodly. Um, it kind of gets past the problem, right? Like so many people don't like a sort of caricature view of substitutionary atonement. So right. then they sort of write to exclude that and say any atonement theory is good except that one. And then the people that defend yeah. it wind up being even more abstract in its defense. I feel like she doesn't play all these things off of each other. I mean, they're, they're, yeah. it's, I, I th- feel the same way. I mean, she, she has room for like, I mean, there's 14 clubs in a, in a, in a golf bag for a reason, right? <laughs> like, right. It's like when people write in the atonement, it's like, well, let's just play the round with three clubs. I mean, <laughs> you want all 14 if you can have them. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people who don't like substitutionary atonement end up like getting really into um, particular church fathers. And and so they just ignore the subject altogether. Um, by contrast, people who really love substitutionary atonement end up, uh, you know, zeroing in on a few verses in Paul and and just like, have exclude everything else. And I think she, the golf bag analogy is exactly right. I mean, I mean, if I were teaching a class on the atonement, I would sort of walk through her book, supplement it with scripture and some other, other thinkers, um, and use that sort of golf analogy, right? So like victory over evil, victory over evil is a really important concept. Um, and, and it's captured in the cross. Unless you're Woody Allen. Then you kind of, <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> <Yeah>. right. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> I sort of back to the like stoicism, you know, you can try to be a stoic for a while, but you know, it doesn't work. <laughs> when you, uh, when you write a list like this, right? Like to what degree is it like a self portrait? Oh yeah. That's, that's definitely going on. Like, and what do you see? And when you look at this list this year, like what portrait do you see? Like where, like, what do you see of yourself when you look at it? Um, so I, so a little bit like how I make the list is probably helpful. Um, so I teach New Testament at an Episcopal seminary. Um, so I, as part of that, I've got a big book budget, right? So I, I basically buy anything that comes across my Twitter feed, across my um, Amazon recommendations list for that matter. Um, and, and, I base, and I usually read most of it. Um, <laughs> there's a few that are, are, you know, go back in the corner. And, and so whenever I, it comes to like making a list like this in early December, I, um, I look at what I bought in Amazon and I use, I use that as my sort of starting point. And so in that sense, it's very much uh, autobiographical of the kinds of things that I've been reading throughout the year. Um, what's been capturing my imagination, what, what, uh, what I found interesting, what I haven't found quite as interesting. Um, yeah, but it's also at the same time, a list, which, which reflects, uh, the sort of, uh, the, the, the vision of Mockingbird at the same time. It's not exhaustive in that way. So like, for example, 
uh, Richard Hayes has a really interesting book on uh, the gospel's use of the Old Testament, right? Echoes of scripture in the gospels. But it's, it's, a, it's a really good sort of academic work and it's, and it's laudable in that way. But, it's, but at the same time, it's not necessarily a book that, uh, that fits uh, the kind of theological uh, sympathy of Mockingbird. Put it that way. <laughs> Without so, you, so your self-portrait, like if you had to say like three adjectives you see in yourself as you look at the list, like what are they? Um, well, um, A, s- scholarly, right? Um, so l- l- like in particular, the Cobb book. Um, the Cobb book is, is very much a scholarly work on Luther and uh, the Wittenberg sort of uh, trajectory that he creates. Um, so it's, it's not like a good go-to Luther book. If, if that's your first book on Luther, it's a good second or third book on Luther. But like, if you're wanting to know about Luther, go to perhaps go to the the Paulson book, which comes out in a, in like a week or so, but don't. Yeah. Um, so a scholarly B, um, you know, um, adjective, how do I, how do I make justification into an adjective? Uh, yeah, but something along those lines, like this, justificationly, uh, justification-ish, um, which is to say that uh, you know, amid my scholarly interests, I have running parallel to that. You know, I'm a human being, and I need to be preached to. So um, I read other books, like Galley's book or Newton's book, as a, as a way of um, sort of feeding my. Uh, deep-seated existential angst. (laughs) 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 Angsty. You're an angsty person. I'll let you off with two. Um, Is there also like, when you put this out there, is there like this like, I mean, social media, everybody, like everybody has something to say. It's funny that like, nobody can just say, oh, those are your books. Like, is there like an anxiety about that? Like, okay, who's going to like, you know, who's going to be dismissive of my list yeah, I, I, of this list? I, you know, I take time, I'm on vacation, it's academic break. I do this thing. And now, you know, it's, I mean, how do you deal with that? Like the criticism of, of, of something like this, that's for fun and that you're doing kind of for fun. Right. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I actually got an email uh, this morning uh, forwarded to me of, of someone who was like nitpicking something about the list. And my response back was, um, I have written what I have written, uh, quoting Pontius Pilate, of course. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, You're washing your hands. You want Barabbas? <laughs> I'll give you Barabbas. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, so th- th- that's the like arrogant part of of being a scholar. Um, every every scholar, to to some degree, has to be have some sense of like um, arrogance. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I I deal with it in the same way I deal with everything I, I write. Like, if I feel good about it myself, if if I think if I can look at the list and go, there isn't anything that's particularly been left off that I that I feel bad about. Um, then if then I sort of stay with stick with that. I, I don't I don't go the like wide range. Um, we'll say like history trajectory of, uh, you know, what will people think of this list in ten years? I don't care. Like I'm happy with it, and that's that's fine. Todd, thanks for doing it. And let let me just say for anybody that comes to the New York conference and meets you, you are one of the most sartorial 
academics I've ever met. You're very good dressed. So <laughs> I, I appreciate that. I appreciate a lot about you, but I've, I've, I, I often mention that when I mention you. Good dresser, that So, and thanks for doing this. And I will see you in New York, if not before then. Yes, I'll, I'll certainly be there. Thanks, man. Good morning, everybody. I, I don't know that I've updated in a while, but I've not worked out yet, but I have showered, shaved, uh, and I have the f- best fitting shirt. I'm buying my shirts at Nordstrom's Rack now. Look at like, you. On clearance. Well, on clearance, only on clearance. But because I was talking with Todd Brewer, who I mentioned at the end of the conversation is so sartorial, I felt like I had to take my game up. So I feel great. How do you guys feel? David, what's going on in Virginia? <laughs> You have, you have not shaved, I see. Uh, I have not shaved. I mean, every time I run into like people at our church during the week, they're always like, "Are you growing a beard?" <laughs> so, no, I just, I'm like a I'm like a German, uh, you know, from the from the 19th century. I only shave once a week. Like they only used to bathe, you know, Saturday nights before church. I shave, uh, you know, right before church, and that's pretty much it. And uh, I have no lack of testosterone when it comes to my face. So. Uh, just deal with it, people. Sarah, how's your test? How's your testosterone level, Sarah? <laughs> it's high. It's always super, super high. I you, you just kill me, man. Because like for those of us that have small children, like I feel lucky to be making complete sentences right now. Like I got it really early. Hustle kids. Got them in warm clothes because it's actually cold in Texas. Shove breakfast at him, which was like a blueberry muffin from Trader Joe's. So completely void of nutrition. Got them to school, argued about gloves. So no, I have not showered. I have not brushed my teeth, but I am here. <laughs> Mark Oppenheimer shaves every morning and has four kids all <laughs> under the age of like 10. So Does his wife say- shave every morning? That's what I want to know. I, well, I don't know. She's a lovely woman though. <laughs> Inside now. She's a beautiful person. And she makes more money than him, which like my wife. So, Speaking of shaving from the Babylon Bee, we've got the local Calvinist who does happen to be bearded and quite bearded. And he is suspicious of any sermon mentioning God's love. <laughs> I love the picture, too. The guy's got this beard, like the hipster beard. Like, that's totally the hipster Calvinist, right? Like. Yeah, they they make a lot of jokes about Calvinists with beards and like, you know, the the way to spot an Arminian is that they're clean shaven or something like that. So I don't know what that says about me. Um, Not that I'm a Calvinist. Uh, Local Calvinist, suspicious of any sermon mentioning God's love. And it talks about this guy, uh, last name Rollins. He says, I'm just not sure about Pastor Frank anymore with all that love and grace talk. I'm not saying he's a heretic over, you know, he, he talked to a friend at a local microbrewery after the service. <laughs> that, that, that's the best part. Yeah, at a local microbrewery. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's like... I I'm not saying he's a heretic or worse, an Arminian. 
But just that we should have our guard up from here on out. I'm seeing a lot of red flags. That phrase, red flags, I mean, you hear that all the time. But at publishing time, Rollins had begun searching for another church where, quote, we're really exhorted to rest in God's wrath and judgment from the pulpit. You know, when when, when you have people pushing back against too much talk of God's love, you think like, well, what do you – I get that they don't want to be that sort of marshmallow, Hallmark card Christianity, you know, just, hey, love, man. But um, – it's like, well, what are you for? <laughs> what do you want? Like, really, you really want us to talk less about love? Um, uh, what the world needs now, man. Yeah. And uh, as well as beer. Sarah, this guy, this guy in particular, many instantiations of him comment on your stuff all the time. Like, like, <laughs> like this Calvinist guy, this archetype, this character, th- these people exist and often comment on your stuff. <laughs> They do. Well, you know, because it's because Pastor Frank is pretty frustrating when he talks about love. But but Pastor Sarah is a girl. So when she talks about it, it can get you a little crazy. Um, Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't know. I also I kind of love this piece because a little bit of me, I could admit uh, this to you guys, a little bit of me uh, identified with the, with the guy who was like critical <laughs> of talking about love too much, because I because I do I I I'm pretty sensitive to that. Like in you know in, in Episcopal context where people just get up and are like love 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 and that you know and there's no talk of forgiveness and there's no talk of sin right and so I I it it actually hit something pretty um pretty uh painfully familiar in me uh i thought but i thought it was great do you think so how many of those guys that like troll you you think have a secret romance like a freudian like there's something you know like you know they protest too much i mean they, there's, <laughs> probably, you know there's something you know there's just something a connection to you that those I guys doubt are it. they're, they're into women that have shaved at this point in the morning and showered and so i i doubt it yeah Maybe hipsterish, very Brooklyn, <laughs> not the shaver shower. Very, very Brooklyn. Oh, no, I never seen anyone like you. So I turned my head and I kissed him. It was just as I feared. There's nothing like a man with a good looking beard. No, there's nothing like a man with a good looking beard. Before we go on to the rest of the contents of Another Weekends, let's take a moment to toot our own horns here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, don't, we don't do that very often, but I, you two both have some significant writing accomplishments that I think it would be fun to talk about. Sarah, your book is 21,000 on Amazon, right? Oh, and so that's like, no, it sounds, it sounds like nothing, but it's like, it's uh, pretty high. I mean, there's like millions of books. I mean, like, you're like, that's, how does that feel? Um, I mean, it's, it's very exciting and really, uh, sweet. And, you know, I, the book was such a labor of love, not just for me, but for the whole Mockingbird team. I mean, Scott, there were so many times I called you to try to figure my way through a chapter and David just edited and edited and CJ and Margaret and Ethan. And I mean, just everybody, there's just a whole group of people, um, that made this come to fruition. So it's, it's awesome. If if people haven't seen on the site, we posted uh, the introduction of it yesterday. And the introduction, the very beginning, references a photo. I mean, the very opening line of the introduction is mentions the KKK. So I figured it was, uh, you know, that was um, 
a bold intro. And it, but it mentions it in relation to a photograph of Sarah when she's younger and, uh, wearing acolyte robes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, sometimes you kind of, uh, you know, you pop these things up for print and you think, Oh, did, you know, did it really look like the KKK? So I, when we were going to, post it. I said, Sarah, I've got to see that photo. If possible, we should, we should post it. If it's anywhere way close to what you described. And, um, it is, <laughs> it is. That's great. It is. I mean, it's, it did not disappoint me at all. And then there's a picture of her sort of just her mouth wide open, clearly just telling her younger brother how it is. Oh and the two things together to me just completely capture <laughs> the charm and, uh, and and they're so in sync with what the book is about. And these were taken what you know? I mean, I was eighteen. It was longer than that. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's just two white kids hanging out in white robes with hoods on them in Mississippi. <laughs> My acolyte robes as a kid were not that. I mean, we were we, we weren't pure white. We had uh, you know the, the alb and everything. But that is uh, unbelievable. Right? That's that's what in my mind I was like, wow, they really do look they like they're do. about to pull the hoods over. I know. It, it, it's very Jedi like as well. I well, mean, it is. Yes, but that's not people's context in Mississippi. Scott. I mean, yeah, it's yeah, it's a different, yeah. I, I, I suppose, I guess. So, yeah. well, there you go. I mean, I'm from the deep south of New Jersey, but that's yeah, true. It's a bit yeah, there is part of New Jersey that's below the Mason Dixon line, but and there is a rodeo in South Jersey, Cowtown. Mm-hmm. So there you go. People that don't know how diverse New Jersey is, it's a very diverse state. People don't write it very often, but and David, you had a piece come out on the cover of Christianity Today. Christianity Today, man, I mean, our religion today, contemporary, you're the cover story. Amazing. And I thought it was nice because, you know, I mean, they, you know, it's the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And, like, it was really incredibly meaningful that they chose you. There'll be a lot of Luther reflections this year, right? A lot. Yeah. And that you were who they wanted to speak to why Luther is still important is really... Uh, I. I, uh, I'm very proud of to be, oh, I'm proud to be both of your friends. It's very, oh, very fun. Thanks. I, I mean, I was, uh, I had no idea it was going to be on the cover and, uh, it was very, it's very touching to me personally. Cause I, I, I do respect what Mark Galley is doing with that magazine. I think it's, it's not what people, if people have associations with Christianity today from, you know, 20 years ago, I think read it now. I mean, I was, I consider Alyssa Wilkinson to be one of the best film critics of any stripe, and she writes for Christianity Today. It's really interesting, Hans Fry, in a response to a lecture Carl Henry gave at Yale, Sarah, years mm-hmm. ago on narrative theology. I mean, Carl Henry could, he was trying to be sympathetic, but he was, he's a little bit of an attack dog at times. He was, I mean, very learned guy, but Hans Fry was so self-effacing, and he said, he had this kind of German accent. It's like, I just am hoping for something... Uh, a generous orthodoxy, some place uh, in between the Christian century and Christianity today. And what's very interesting is those magazines, since he said that, I mean, not explicitly in response to it, but there has been, they've moved closer towards each other. Mm-hmm. And I mean that in a salutary way. They, 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 they both, and it's a sign of any publication that it can evolve because yeah. things don't always evolve. I mean, things, you know, and so that's, 
I, I echo your sentiments about Christianity. Yeah, it, there's a lot of thoughtful stuff in there, and it's not monochrome politically or, or what you have you. I mean, they, Joseph Fleming Rutledge's book is the book of the year. I think that's a tremendous so choice. Friend and, of the show, friend of the show, Fleming Rutledge, who's coming back on the podcast <laughs> and will be speaking at our New York conference. That's true. Let me say one, one other thing, though, because, you know, we, when we started Mockingbird uh, 10 years ago, uh, the sort of originally it was, you know, we had an opportunity, we had a little bit of money, like, let's just tr see what happens. But the sort of formal goals, if you had told, if you'd asked uh, uh, me and Paul Walker and Jacob Smith and J.D. Koch, who were the little, you know, you know, pizza eating group who, who kind of decided one night to, you know, over beers to do this thing. But um, <laughs> we said, well, why don't we, you know, one of the things that pains us is that this sort of law and gospel, law and grace, um, theology of the cross, bondage of the will, these things which mean so much and seem to have so much traction in, in everyday life and really speak to suffering people, they seem to be just be nowhere in the Nash, in, in the sort of our Christian, uh, discourse or just in the way that when, when people think of what Christianity is, those, things that we find to be so important are nowhere. And so we said, okay, let's, let's see, we, you know, formally, if someone's asked us what Mockingbird's about, okay, we're trying to sort of push these, uh, the, these ideas and at least introduce them to people, make them part of the conversation. And so 10 years later to be asked to actually write about mm. it in the biggest sort of the, the, one of the last men standing or last persons standing in the sort of Christian publishing world, uh, to be a voice there. I mean, I, by the way, I had enormous amounts of help with that article. Um, Simeon Zoll, especially John Olomba. The great Simeon Zoll. He's good for something. Scott, you, you read it. I, I dare say uh, my father might have taken a glance at it too. But it, so it was a team effort. And, um, you know, whether and how well it's well received, I don't know. But it was, uh, it was certainly a privilege and to be asked to do it. Uh, and then just to turn something in and be like, okay, here you go. This is what I feel. And, um, they didn't, they didn't over edit it. And then they put it on the cover. I thought to myself, what, 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 how did this happen? How did this happen? You know? So, um, it was, it, it's been encouraging week to me, but it's also, of course, the wider, the bigger, the platform, the more you, criticism you get sure. as well. So, yeah. so anyway, that, that's my, my feelings on the matter. And both of you, I have talked to a lot of people recently about David, about your piece and about Sarah, about your book. I have friends who have bought your book for other people. Uh, and uh, yeah, I th it's exciting. So I think, uh, yeah. And they took the people paywall off your Christianity today piece, David. It's nice. So you can read yeah. that baby for free, for free Actually, as the I grace the of God. I think the paywall's back. Oh, up. it's back. There's, up. there's, if you share it or there's a somewhat, they sent me a sharing link and, um, I think the link that's on our website on the January playlist that will allow you to read the whole thing. But, um, you know, people should subscribe to Christianity. Today. It's, it's a great publication and it's, it really is excellent. It's, it's pretty wide ranging. So, um, I think they'll be surprised of what they find there. But anyway, uh, it's you guys, it's such a, it's such a fun thing to be a part of this at the dawn of 2017, the sequel to the worst year ever. Sarah. That's right. Um, this year shall see no sin. <laughs> this year. No celebrity be... deaths. No yeah. personal tragedy. Okay. I'm I done. still blame you for George Michael. Sarah. Good luck with your New Year's resolutions. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, it, it's been a great year and I'm looking forward to a new, another one with you all in the 500th year of the Reformation, baby. I mean, 
I get, Scott, I got to give a shout out to my friend Drake, who always he, he tried to sort of take uh, the gospel and, and do a uh, New Year's resolution. He said, "This year, I resolved to do a little less and to do it a little less well." <laughs> I like that. I do too. So there you go. Well, gang, uh, this has been fun. It's been real, and it's been fun, but it hasn't been real fun. Well, moving on to Good Riddance Day. Good Riddance. Yeah, Good Riddance Day. This comes to us from our friend Josh Insinius, who um, I guess Wednesday, December 28th, was Good Riddance Day, the 10th annual Good Riddance Day. So it's on the same track as us uh, in New York City and Times Square. Where people come, participants wrote down unpleasant, painful, or embarrassing memories from the past year and chucked them into an industrial strength shedder. Organizers said it's a good way to start the new year with a clean slate. Um, It's a chance to detox in a big way. The organizer went on to say that they also have a sledgehammer, that sometimes people come and want to destroy something physically, like an old cell phone that's driving them crazy. And, uh, you know, the obvious... uh, the desire for a clean slate. Um, it, this is a, a, you know, cute way of, of looking at it perhaps. And, and it, it ultimately somewhat ineffectual though, perhaps a cathartic, um, that, uh, this is something that's deeply ingrained. Uh, I, the people will talk about global events. I, I would imagine most folks come to uh, good riddance day and have something very personal that they want to get rid of, not something related to the election, though, perhaps maybe that or, or Syria. I don't know. Those are legitimate, but I have a feeling that when, when I talk about good riddance day, I know what I want to get rid of from 2006. I know where I want the clean slate and has, it is, has everything to do with uh, personal uh, transgression and exactly what uh, Sarah talked about. Sarah, David, I forgive you for things you did to me. (laughs) You have a a clean slate with me. I appreciate that. Yeah, I liked this because I feel like it's just one more example of white people making things less fun. Um, Because it's modeled modeled after... (laughs) But seriously, modeled after a Latin American tradition in which New Year's uh, revelers stuffed dolls with objects representing bad memories before setting them on fire um sign me up for that like i'd much rather do that than throw paper into a big shredder um i thought this was great i mean it, but it, it does hit that thing and i I know people are probably sick of me saying this stuff and writing this stuff but like 2017 is just another year and it's still gonna be full of like disappointment and heartache and sin and um yeah, I mean, we're going to talk about this piece in a few minutes from this from this guy that that uh, suffered enormous pain and and loss and shock very early in life, and and he talks about the acceptance of it, and and in some ways, I mean, I, I understand this idea of good riddance, but I also wonder about what it looks like when we um, when we just accept reality. So yeah, it, it, and you know, yeah, the problem's just white people, Sarah. <laughs> that's so great white people uh, white people just don't want to have fun it could Mm-mm. do a riff on Cindy Lauper so make the best of this test and don't ask why 
It's not a question but a lesson learned in time It's something unpredictable But in the end is right Yeah, 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 it, it is interesting that because you think about pairing this piece with this this other piece about this amazing story of this physician, right? I mean, who, yeah, I mean, this thing blows me away. Mm. You want to talk about uh, w- w- what you're referring to, Scott, is the one man's quest to change the way we die. Yeah. It's uh, it, it, John uh, Mualam, great last name, wrote about um, – B.J. Miller, the physician and palliative care doctor uh, in San Francisco, I believe, um, for the New York Times Magazine. It's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, it, really, really great uh, stuff. I commend every, uh, to everyone to read this weekend. It's about this guy, B.J. Miller, who when he was at Princeton as an undergrad, he and his friends climbed on a – or he personally climbed on a train and got shocked uh, so badly that he basically – he had – both of his legs and one of his arms had to be amputated. And so that was the starting point of his, of course, his, his wound, his suffering is the starting point of his, you know, uh, love for other people and his, his, his vocation, almost definitely his vocation in terms of, uh, looking into the way people die. And he talks about being in the burn unit, uh, and, and sort of, he was, he blocked out for a lot of it. He didn't know what, how to reconceive of himself. He did have a mother who was in a wheelchair because of polio. And I think that that helped him see that there was a future, but he, he talks about going to, uh, they, they're bringing him in to get, uh, an operation. And it's because no one could see him in the burn unit because he was, it has to be totally sterile. No one could come, but then they're taking him to get operated on. And he looks at the window and he sees all of his friends and his family. And he said, they all dared to show up. They all dared to look at me. They were proving that I was lovable even when I couldn't see it. So he resolved to think of his suffering as simply a variation on a theme we all deal with, that to be human is really hard. His life had never felt easy, even as a privileged, able-bodied suburban boy with two adoring parents. Yes, he's a white guy. Um, and he never felt, but he he's never He's one of the good ones. He's one of the good ones. <laughs> There's just a few though. <laughs> well, when we talk about white people problems, what you're basically telling people is shut yeah. up about your yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Any pain you're feeling. Yeah. Uh, but he never felt entitled to any angst. He saw unhappiness as an illegitimate intrusion into the carefree reality he was supposed to inhabit. And don't we all do that, he realized. Don't we all treat suffering as a disruption hmm. to existence instead of an inevitable part of it? He wondered what would happen if you could reincorporate your version of reality to uh accommodate suffering. You know, there's a lot of Buddhist overtones to this, but I would also say that there's a huge amount of theology of the cross sort of just, just humming, uh, just pouring out of this. He said he worked, um, uh, to, to see himself as a sitting on a continuum between the man on his deathbed and the woman who misplaced her car keys to let his accident heighten his connectedness to others instead of isolating. It was the only way to keep from hating his injuries and by extension himself. They, he goes on to discuss his studying art history and sculptures that are missing arms and legs and how people talk about them as so beautiful, even though they're incomplete. He goes on to say that he said, uh, Parts of me died early on, and that's something one way or another we can all say. I got to redesign my life around this fact, and I can tell you it has been a liberation to realize you can always find a shock of beauty or meaning in what life you have left. And so his goal, as he likes to put it, has become to depathologize death, um, to reclaim the end of his life as a human experience instead of a medical one. 
And, uh, you know, all everyone around him talks about him as being this really magnetic, almost Christ-like character. It's uh, one of his friends was quoted saying, it's reasonable to say that it's impossible to describe what it feels like to be with him. People feel accepted. I think they feel loved. So when a guy who's missing three limbs comes in to be your physician and you're on your deathbed, you know that he's not just whistling Dixie, I guess. Um, and that in part of their sort of care for people that he said, you train people not to run away from the hard things, not to run away from the suffering of others. And this liberates people in the hospice care to feel whatever they're going to feel in their final days, even to fall apart. Yet I'll, I'll shut up after this, but it goes on to tell this incredible story of a kid named Randy Sloan who died at 27. And in, in, in his hospice time, he kind of just carried on being a 27 year old and playing video games and not really and smoking cigarettes and not really doing much. And, but Miller said it, you know, the author was like worried about this. Is this all there is? is don't we want to guide him into something more meaningful? And he said that Randy got to play himself out meant that Randy's ability to be Randy was never unnecessarily constrained. What he chose to do with that freedom at, during hospice was up to him. Uh, yes. So the, the, it, it, Miller for Miller, uh, the hospice is about resting death from the one size fits all approach of hospitals, but it's also about puncturing a competing impulse that our need for death to be a hyper transcendent experience. Most people aren't having these transformative deathbed moments, Miller said. And if you hold that out as a, hold that out as a goal, they're just going to feel like they're failing. Mm. So there you have it. The law. Right. As it applies to death, the death not just being the judgment of the law, but somehow we were so inculcated with this need to judge and to um, to to uh, create standards out of thin air that we we judge how people are going to die, which often prevents them from dying with with any kind of purpose. There's a whole lot more here. Uh, what 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 struck you guys? Um. You know, it's it's funny. The thing that stayed with me most was the image of his family gathering to see him that you read um, as he was being wheeled back to have his arm amputated uh, because it, it reminded me of when I worked in a psychiatric hospital that there's a really common experience for a lot of people who end up in psych hospitals that they feel like their family will reject them. If they're married, they feel like, you know, their husband and their, or their wife won't, um, might leave them, might divorce them and that, that they need desperately. And the people who, who did so much better in those environments typically, um, received from their family total love and total acceptance um, and would see them at their absolute worst. Um, that that was such a powerful image for me. And the other thing I was thinking about, David, was something we talked about earlier this week, just this need people have um, with funerals to make them so clearly um, curated and, and so much about themselves. I mean, in, in much the way we've seen weddings go, right? Everyone writes their own vows now and um, there's not much trust put into just using liturgy. And, and it, it adds a, another, I mean, I see in funerals, at least in, in parish ministry, it adds a whole nother layer of anxiety of, you know, who should talk and what should we do and how should this work? And I have to say, that's for me, one of the beautiful things about being in an Episcopal church and honestly about being at St. Martin's because we're like, it's very clear there, you know, this is, this is how long we give somebody to stand up and, and give, give our eulogy. And we only do a few of those. And, um, and, and it, 
it, in some way it takes the burden off of the family and it takes the burden off of the one who's dying that this becomes like yet one more area in their life. They have to perform something. There's this passage in, I think it's in the great divorce where C.S. Lewis says, shame is like that. If you will accept it, if you will drink the cup to the bottom, you will find it very nourishing, but try to do anything else with it. And it scalds. And I think you could put suffering or sin or broken, like the, like there's there's this acceptance of like finitude, fragility, and you know implicitly fallenness here in this piece that like you I mean we spend most of our lives trying never to drink the cup of that and 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 that's where the law's power is right the accurate like thinking that we can sort of somehow squirm out from the grip and the clutch of those things and yet there are those things that are the worst and yet. When you can drink it down, all of a sudden, like, there's no, it's like when you have a secret you're covering up and there's so much power in the suppression. And when you finally quit on it, you feel a lot more free. And I think that this is, as you read about this hospice doctor, like it's, it's a triple amputee seems anything but fettered. Yeah. I, you know, and the other thing I keep thinking of here, Scott is, um, and I'm, I, I sort of, I'm always thinking this about life. Um, so maybe I haven't overexamined life, but, um, but I'm always thinking about what God's preparing us for. And I, 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 it really strikes me that this guy's mom had polio, has polio and, and that he grew up with a mother in a wheelchair. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm completely kind of bowled over by that. Like what, I'm sure she had so many moments of what's the point and I can't mother in the way I need to. And what's the purpose of this? And, you know, and then to have been an example all along for her son and not known it is so powerful to me as a mother. Yeah. I felt, I felt the same, same way. So powerful. I will talk to you all next week. Thanks guys. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the mocking cast. As always, you can find any of the content we reference on our website mbird.com. If you like what you heard, please go over to iTunes, give us a rating, maybe even write a review, hopefully a positive one. We exist because of the enthusiasm, generosity, and support of you, our listeners and readers. And for that, we're forever grateful. This podcast is produced by yours truly, Scott Jones, ably assisted by my associate, David Peterson. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.